0: There is something about this power of the story of a changed life. There's something about the power of a witness, as we were just singing about. The power of testimony, the power of Jesus to change a life. And when we preach on these things, what the scripture says about Jesus' power to change our lives, it, it becomes particularly poignant when we hear a testimony of that happening, right? So when we talk about restored marriages and we do as we did a couple of Thanksgivings, Eves ago, we share the story of a restored marriage that only Jesus could have restored. Or when we share about the power of Jesus to break the bonds of addiction, and then we share stories, testimonies of those who have experienced the bondage of addiction being broken in a way that only Jesus could do, it not only makes it more poignant, but also it does something else. If you're in the place where you're struggling with whatever those things are, it, it instills the smallest amount of hope. Right? It takes the abstract doctrines of the scripture and it makes them deeply personal. It puts a, an abiding hope in. This is what we're gonna see as we pivot a little bit in the book of Acts this morning, as Luke pivots his narrative away from sort of like the mass movement of what the Holy Spirit has been doing and thousands being added to the, to the church every day and, and these major moves of God as we, we're in this series called Spirit on the Move, we're gonna see that the Spirit now moves through the life, witness, and testimony of three people. This morning, we look at Stephen the martyr. The Greek word martyr means witness. And it's not an accident, although Johnny and I did not coordinate or plan it, that, that we just sang that song. That's just the Spirit of God. Next week, we're going to look at Philip the Evangelist. And then we'll spend a couple of weeks looking at Saul the Persecutor. So excited to kind of dive in this morning. My name is Gary. I'm the lead pastor here at GBC. Excited you're with us. You made it into the parking lot and you didn't get lost. We're so grateful. Let me pray. Lord God, is, even as we're going to hear in our message this morning, would you help each one of us viewing online or in this room to see and to hear beyond me to you that we would even see and hear through the scripture you Jesus in a new and powerful way by the power of your Holy Spirit whom we believe God is on the move as he was in the first century so we give you this time in Jesus name Amen Amen. So we're going to look at three things. We're looking at Stephen this morning, and you're going to probably say, some of you, well, who on earth is Stephen? We're going to talk about Stephen's profile. Who is Stephen? Then we'll look at Stephen's speech, which is 50 verses. It's basically all of Acts chapter 7, and so we're going to kind of uh, approach that from a little bit of a different way. Um, and then we're going to, we'll end with Stephen's warning, and ultimately, not just Stephen's glory, but looking beyond Stephen to see the glory of Jesus himself. So looking at Stephen's profile, we've got to kind of touch back to last week's passage in, uh, at the end of Acts chapter 6, as we touch down in to verses 8, 10, and 15, we learn a few things about Stephen. Number one, in verse 8, that he's full of grace and power, working wonders. Now, if you remember, if you are here with us last week, Stephen is one of these seven guys who was raised up to handle a logistical issue because of the rapid growth of the church. A parking problem. In this case, it was a food problem. But Stephen's no warm pulse, right? He's not just an administrator or an organizer of some kind. He is a dynamic disciple of Jesus. It says that he's working wonders. It may be that Luke, in using that language, is actually echoing back to the burning bush when God says to Moses that he will show Egypt who he is by working wonders. Stephen also displays the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is dragged, just like Jesus, before his accusers, the Sanhedrin, just like Jesus. He's falsely accused with false witnesses, just like Jesus. He has an opportunity to make his defense, just like Jesus. Spoiler, he's executed, just like Jesus. And Stephen fulfills the words of Jesus through Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, who wrote earlier the book of Luke when Luke said this, and note the circumstances of Stephen's trial and false accusations. Whenever they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what is to be said. Stephen is a spirit-filled guy and he responds in the leading of the Holy Spirit. But Stephen is also one who commands the attention we see in verse 15 of chapter 6, and he has this angelic likeness about him. I I would argue that for the rest of the text, we see that he actually has the bearing of his Lord, of Jesus himself. G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, between Stephen and Jesus, there's a communion of nature. There's a communion of testimony. There's a communion of suffering. And finally, there was a communion of triumph, which is where we'll end this morning. So when we talk about the spirit on the move, we've seen through acts thus far, these major moves, but how does the spirit of God move most powerfully in building Christ's kingdom? He does so through individuals who are sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are spirit-led and who are spirit-filled. And we've seen that down through human history, and it begins with Stephen, the martyr, the witness. If we go to the early Reformation, before uh, guys like John Calvin and Martin Luther and other more well-known names, there were the pre-Reformers. John Wycliffe, whose passion was to translate the Bible, he was called the morning star of the Reformation because he was very early in this movement. His passion to translate the Word of God so that everyone could read it continues today through Wycliffe Bible translators and missionaries who go all over the world translating the Bible into into indigenous languages. It began with Wycliffe himself. And Jan Hus, who came after, who was a a student of Wycliffe, Jan Hus was the first person to articulate to the church at the time, salvation comes by faith in Jesus alone. We're justified, made right with God. So that when Martin Luther began to read Hus's writings and began to read Galatians and Romans, he said this of Jan Hus, he said, we are all Hussites, without knowing it. John Huss was also burned at the stake for these teachings, for these doctrines. John Wycliffe, while he died of a stroke, his bones were actually exhumed and burned with his writings as if that would somehow deal with him in a different way. And then a little bit later, at the beginning of the 16th century, was William Tyndale. William Tyndale, known as God's outlaw, was often in exile and his passion was to translate the scriptures into English that the common English peasant could read the Bible. And eventually, in his lifetime, the English Bible, the first version of the English Bible was smuggled back into England. And Tyndale paid as well with his his life. Today, Tyndale House Publishers, named after Tyndale and his legacy, publishes Bibles and Christian books bearing the name of this important reformer. Beginning with Stephen, down through human history, there have been those who've been willing to bear whatever it took to be martyrs, to be witnesses for the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to put anyone on a pedestal, but I will tell you that I've been encouraged by the life and witness of a young quarterback of the Houston Texans, C.J. Stroud. If you've been following his story at all, he has had just an epic season with the Texans, and he begins every interview With first and foremost, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting how the media has become creative at cutting away or editing that out. And here's the thing. This is our big point for today. We see in Stephen and all the way down through human history that the boldness of the Holy Spirit will always elevate one message. Jesus and his cross. Jesus and redemption. The boldness of the Holy Spirit will always elevate one message. Well, back to Stephen. Stephen, as G. Campbell Morgan elaborates as we've looked at, he has this bearing of the Lord. And so just our first application question to to wrestle with is something that I've wrestled with this week is do I bear likeness to Jesus not in my knowledge of the Bible and other things, but in my countenance, in my bearing? What about in my courage and my willingness to tell people about Jesus or even to confront a brother or sister lovingly in sin? Certainly, as Jesus said, looking at the plank in my own eye before I look at the speck in another. But do I bear the countenance of Jesus as Stephen does in his boldness and his courage and his conviction as he is falsely accused? It's worth wrestling with this morning. Well, that's Stephen's profile. Let's look at his speech. Now, Stephen's speech is long. So we're going to do something a little different. We're going to touch down in the text, and then I'll paraphrase a section, and we'll touch down the text, text, and we'll we'll kind of move our way through the passage in that manner. So Stephen's given the opportunity to speak, and he begins this way. He says, Brothers and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran, and he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. And Stephen goes on to say that Abraham did leave the land of the Chaldeans, but he didn't receive his inheritance there. He he didn't receive the promises of God. God reiterates the promises, and then God actually predicts that his people, the descendants of Abraham, will be enslaved for four centuries. In verse 8, he continues, God spoke, and so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. He fathered Isaac. Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. The 12 patriarchs became jealous of Joseph, who was the youngest of them, and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him, that is Joseph, favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Stephen goes on to recount, verses 11 to 16, the famine in Egypt, and that Jacob sends his sons back to to Egypt, where Joseph reveals himself to be their long-lost brother, whom they assumed to be dead after they sold him into slavery. Stephen continues, verse 17, as the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who didn't know Joseph Ruled in Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. What a neat line in the scripture. Moses was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months, and when he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. And so Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and actions. Verse 23 to 30, Stephen recounts Moses taking action to try to deliver his people on his own and how he ends up fleeing Egypt from Midian at the end of 40 years. in Midian, God appears to Moses in a burning bush, a bush that is not consumed. And Stephen continues, he says, when Moses saw it, that is the bush, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your fathers, your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning. I have come down to set them free. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. From here, Stephen makes clear, particularly in verse 39 and following, that the forefathers of Israel fully reject Moses. And in fact, while he is gone, receiving the law on Mount Sinai, they make a golden calf to which they bow down and to which they attribute their deliverance from Egypt. They fully betray the Lord in this act committing both spiritual adultery and idolatry. And Stephen then continues in verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. That's, we read of that in the book of Exodus. Until the days of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place, a temple for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built the house, but the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will my resting place be? Did not my hands make all these things? Now, at this point in Stephen's speech, he moves from recounting the history of Israel and the people's consistent rejection to his own contemporaries, to his present audience, those accusing him. Now note that Stephen hasn't actually made any defense of himself. He has simply laid out the historical fact of his own people's rejection of God and God's messenger throughout their history, whether that be Joseph by his brothers or Moses by the people. And now he gets to his own people in verse 51. And listen to what he says. You stiff-necked people, with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, so you also do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet you have not kept it. These are bold words. And I think it's likely that the response of Stephen's accusers, they probably interrupt him. They cut him off here, I think. They said, they respond this way. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together they rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city city, and they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll come back to Saul in a couple weeks. Notice there also is a sub-theme throughout this passage of witnesses, angels, messengers. Stephen bears witness in a very bold way here. And and it's fair to say this morning, okay, what on earth is going on here? There is a lot. I mean, if if you're new to the Bible, we hit you with a lot this morning. You've just met Stephen. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. Now Stephen goes through basically an entire Old Testament history of Israel with all of these names and places and so on and so forth. And actually, there's some scholarly conversation about um, some of the actual inaccuracies of the way that Stephen recounts the history of Israel here. He conflates certain events and details uh, about the early patriarchs. He telescopes to, to particular events. Why, is he, uh, why does he approach it this way? Well, first, in Stephen's defense, he is dragged into the Sanhedrin without any warning and, and told to respond to these false accusations against him. Put yourself in his shoes, right? He's, he hasn't prepared this. He's speaking as temporaneously, but there's one message, passionate message that he wants to convey to his people. So this is not a a carefully articulated scholastic history of God's people. Rather, this is an impassioned testimony. And it's meant to challenge the people's love of the land that is the promised land, the law is the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the Torah, and the temple above their relationship and their love for their covenant God. In each moment throughout their history, Stephen illustrates that God has actually nurtured relationship with his people outside of the conventions of Jewish understood, Jewish understood places, religious principles of the law, and correct practices. What Stephen is saying, in essence, is that his people love the land, the law, and the temple more than they love God himself. And how does he know? Because they missed Jesus the very one who came, the Messiah they've been waiting for, they're so consumed with their idolatry over these other things that they miss the righteous one as he calls him altogether. Now there's lessons for us in this, but let's touch down on these three things briefly in a little bit more detail. Speaking with the land. The land, Stephen is saying, is not ultimate. The land is not the center of God's relationship with his people. Jesus is. Now, in all three of these points, in the literal and and in the Old Testament, it actually is the center, right? The land is where God brought his people. But what Stephen is saying is the land was always meant to point beyond itself to something greater, namely Jesus. And he illustrates that by going through several of the patriarchs and saying, listen, when God called Abraham, he wasn't in the land of promise, he came from Ur the Chaldeans. When, when God provided for and, and uh, when Israel through Jacob and Joseph's descendants experienced flourishing and miraculous provision and deliverance, it wasn't in the land of promise. It was in Egypt. He says, even Moses was commissioned and called from Midian, not from Israel. In other words, these places that were not the promised land were the places where God made his promises and where he foreshadowed these promises fulfilled in Jesus, particularly in the lives of Joseph, who rescues his entire known world at the time from famine, and in Moses, who's the mediator of the first covenant, just as Jesus is the mediator of the second covenant. We'll come back to that a little later. The land was not ultimate. It's what Stephen is challenging. But the law was not ultimate either, the Mosaic law. The law was not the means of God's relationship with his people. Jesus is. Now, again, in the literal, the law exactly is the means of God's relationship with his people. But what Stephen is saying is that Moses himself spoke beyond the law to a man, to a person, to Jesus. Deuteronomy 18 says, God will send you a prophet like me from among your own people. Stephen quotes this. Jesus, in John's gospel, he's being confronted by the Pharisees and they use Moses the patriarch, to kind of point the finger at Jesus to to, um, accuse him. And Jesus actually turns it right around. He says this in John chapter five. He says, your accuser is Moses, the one on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. Listen, for he wrote about me. Jesus is saying Moses wrote about me as the great prophet of Deuteronomy 18. This is an incredibly arrogant and blasphemous statement unless it's true. And we could see why the Jews were so enraged. Moses speaks beyond the law to a person. But Moses, as we hinted at, prefigures Jesus in his rejection as covenant mediator. Verse 39 and 40, we're told that the people rejected Moses, that their hearts turned back to Egypt, and that they asked Aaron to make them gods to go before them. So, like the land and the law, we have something that's not ultimate, but the thing that points to Jesus, another thing that points to Jesus. Now, Paul makes this explicitly clear sometime after the book of Acts when he says this, the law was our guardian until Christ, Galatians 3. Or if you read the King James Version, the law was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Or the New International Version, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith in Jesus. Jesus. On our website, if you look at our Galatians series, you can find a a deeper teaching on this passage in Galatians 3. But just like the land, the law pointed beyond itself, both through Moses and the law itself, to Jesus. Well, what about the tabernacle? A little bit of an aside here if you're new to the scripture. The tabernacle was the, uh, the tent that dwelled in the middle of the camp of Israel that could be torn down, Packed up and moved with Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. When Israel finally gets their own ghost, gets to the promised land after some time, they build a permanent house, as it were, for God. They build a temple. Solomon builds a temple. The Lord. And so we use the terms temple and tabernacle interchangeably. But what what Stephen is saying is the temple's not ultimate. The temple is not the center of God's presence and power for his people. Ultimately, Jesus is. Again, in the literal, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, and specifically uh, the, the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, was the very central place of God meeting with his people. But again, it was meant to point beyond itself to Jesus. Christianity is a strange strange religion if you measure it that way uh, uh, to other world religions and it's because God ordained that he would reach down to us John says in John chapter 1 that Jesus made his dwelling he tabernacled among us And, and so if we understand Christian doctrine correctly in Christianity we do not have a priest Jesus is our high priest we do not have a temple Jesus is the temple we do not bring sacrifices. Jesus is the sacrifice. That is completely unique in world religions. And all of these things, the land, the law, and the tabernacle, of the temple point forward to Jesus. They are not ultimate. The other thing that Stephen says is the temple was actually kind of a temporary concession that pointed beyond it to the house that God would build for David. When David says When God says to David, no, you're not going to build a house temple for me, your son is, he then goes on to say, I'm going to build a house for you, meaning a family line, a forever rule, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the eternal son of David. So again, like the land, like the law, the temple, tabernacle, is not the ultimate thing. We're given another thing that points beyond Jesus. And Stephen, in his boldness, and any time we see the boldness of human history always elevates one message, Jesus and his redemption through his cross. So even for us today, you know, we talked about when we built this building, right? The church is not a building. The church is a people. But beyond that, there is nothing sacred about this place. The place that we gather, there's something unique that happens when the church gathers by the Holy Spirit. But, and, and while this place, this building is important, it's not ultimate right? Biblical principles that we teach from the Word of God are important. You know, I, I grew up in this church, and, and the language of living according to biblical principles at times actually outweighed the language of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, biblical principles are very important, particularly when we study uh, stories or narratives in the Old Testament or like the book of Acts, where we're not given a, a didactic, like, application of do this or don't do that or live this way or don't live that way, then we draw out principles to what we're doing today. That's very important, but it's not ultimate. You can live a very moral, biblically principled life and never repent of your sins and trust in Jesus as your Savior. We can do exactly, if we're not careful, what happens here we can miss Jesus for the sake of religious principles. What about the importance of religious practices? This is really important if you have a Catholic background this morning, that even as we take communion, the the body and the blood of Christ, or we go through baptism, which are the two main practices of our Christian faith, that those things in and of themselves don't save us. They don't cleanse or forgive our sins. They symbolically represent what Christ has done for us. They point beyond themselves to Jesus. Religious places, religious principles, religious practices. We can certainly widen that lens and ask this question. What religious or non-religious things have I made ultimate instead of Christ? Because the boldness of the Holy Spirit will always elevate one message. Jesus over religious places, principles, and practices. Now, if if you're new to the Christian faith, new to Jesus, new to church, you might be really confused right now. Right? You might have come in and said, well, I, mean, I thought church was religion. But first of all, it depends on how we define that word. But the point that Stephen's making, the point we want to make to you today, is don't miss Jesus for the sake of religious places, practices, and principles. God wants you to know your heart, and he wants you to know his heart. Now, we do that through his word. This is how God speaks to us, through the scripture. By the way, if you want to know how we speak to him, it's called prayer. It's what um, the early church fathers called spiritual breathing. We breathe in through the word of God and we breathe out through prayer. Well, that is the briefest survey of Stephen's speech. Let's let's move to his warning and to Jesus' glory. Uh, Stephen very clearly links his contemporaries with all the Old Testament kings and and elders and others who persecuted the prophets and he, he levels four accusations back at them. He says, you have been stiff-necked, you've been hard-hearted, and you've been resistant to the Holy Spirit, just like your forefathers. And there's linkage to all the Old Testament there. That's a warning for us this morning. I don't know what it is that you come in with this morning, what you're carrying. Maybe it's a sin struggle that you have not let go of or pride, or maybe you're wounded But if the Holy Spirit of God is is speaking to your heart this morning, Stephen would warn, don't be stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and resistant. Open your heart to what God wants to do. And there's one other accusation that's here. He says, You received the law of God, but you've essentially neglected it or denied it. And I think for us, having the word of God today, it's an indictment to the to the modern church. And, And I'll speak for myself. I think in my house I have 15 or 20 Bibles, right? I didn't count but easily. And yet how prone we are to neglect the word of God for other things, other ways to use our leisure time. There's a warning for us here. You've received the very word of God. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. You want to know God's heart for you? You want to know who you are in Christ? You want to know how God made you as an image bearer? You want to know what he expects for you? Most importantly, you want to know what Jesus did for you and how much he loves you? Read his word. Well, as if Stephen's speech and his indictment of his people, his warning for us, hasn't made it clear enough, Luke's account of what happens next, I believe, elevates Jesus to an unimaginable glory, and it reveals something about Jesus that occurs nowhere else in the Bible in this manner. I'll show it to you kind of with the opposite, with the negative image. Jesus is always depicted, if we can throw those references up on the screen, in all of these verses throughout the, the scripture, from the Psalms, to the Gospels, to Paul's teachings, to the writer of Hebrews, to Revelation, to the apocalyptic Revelation, in every single one of these scriptures, Jesus is pictured as seated on the, uh, on the throne, to the right hand of the Father, on the throne of God, seated in a position of reign and rule and judgment and authority and intercession. He is always seated at the right hand of the Father. Now there's all kinds of really cool imagery as you get into it, right? When Jesus um, comes and when he reads in the synagogue, the words of Isaiah the prophet, the text says that he goes, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, he sits down and then all eyes turn on him. And he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That posture of sitting was the posture of teaching in the synagogue for for the Jews, for the rabbis at that time. In other words, unlike me standing and teaching, The scripture would be read standing and then the rabbi would sit. And also throughout scripture, the position of sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, if you read all these verses, is Jesus reigning and ruling and judging. With the exception of Acts chapter 7. This is the only place where as Stephen looks up to heaven, it says this, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. And I don't think that's incidental. I know in the New Testament when we see something like this, it's not incidental. And I don't think it's over-spiritualizing. For us to look at the breadth of Scripture, of these uh, Scriptures that you see on the screen this morning, and see that Jesus is always depicted as sitting in both the place of rule and judgment, and yes, intercession and advocacy for us, his followers. But at the time at which Stephen fulfills the promise of Luke chapter 12 that we read earlier, that when you are dragged before your accusers, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say that in that moment of Stephen's faithfulness, boldness, and obedience, Jesus embodies in his very change of posture the promise of Jesus' own words, his own words in Matthew 10. That if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father who is in heaven. That is, that as Stephen, moments before he breathes his last, he sees Jesus not seated as his judge, but standing to welcome him into his eternal home as his friend and as his brother, which is what Jesus calls us as believers. And it begs us to ask the question this morning. It's the most important question that you can ask. Will Jesus be sitting in the place of my judgment or standing to welcome me home when my final day comes? You know, we've had two memorial services from this community, Joan Grindle and yesterday, Uh, We have Dave Durante that we celebrated and, and memorialized. Every single one of us in this room online will face one of two realities. We will either die or Jesus will return before we die and we'll be judged at that point. Will Jesus be seated as your judge or will he be standing to welcome you home? Maybe you say this morning, well, how on earth do I know that? I mean, I've tried to be a good person. I give money, I help at the food bank, I do the, I do the things. Well, That brings us to communion this morning. See, what we do in taking this little piece of bread and this cup, what we'll do in a minute, reminds us that how Jesus goes from being our judge to our dear friend welcoming us home is through his cross. It's through his cross. Jesus offers his body symbolized in the bread, and he gives us a perfect, sinless, holy, obedient body. In the Old Testament, uh, when, when the Old Testament people came to the Day of Atonement, they were to take a lamb, a perfect, think about a little lamb, right? Perfect, spotless lamb. And they were to bleed it out, slaughter it with their children, the whole family, And its blood was to be applied for the forgiveness of their sins. But the Bible tells us that was temporary. That Jesus in John's gospel is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus offers a perfect, sinless, eternal body. And then his blood is poured out, symbolized in the cup. His blood is poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. He is judged instead of me. And so by simply receiving through faith and trust, that what he did on the cross for me is what saves me. He moves from being my judge to being my friend, to welcoming me home. That's the simplicity of the gospel. That's what Stephen is so impassioned and willing to pay with his life for. You miss Jesus because you were so focused on the land, the law and the temple. What's that thing for us? Let's not miss Jesus because we made a parking change or there's some aesthetic thing that we don't like. I want to invite the ushers to come at this time and we're going to distribute communion. I want to read to you from Paul's letter what communion is. If you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, I encourage you to just let this pass you by and if there's somebody next to you who takes it, ask them after, what exactly did that mean? Explain that to me. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, Paul says in Corinthians, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you as of first importance. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, And so you're gonna take bread this morning. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup also. And so you're gonna take a cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So I want you to take the bread, take the cup and just take a few moments and say, Jesus, thank you. Help me to not miss you for the sake of other things, religious or, or not, that would distract me. And a few moments after everyone has the bread and the cup, I'll give thanks for the bread. We'll take it. I'll give thanks for the cup and we'll take it. Take some time. Be with the Lord. You know, as, as we grow, it takes longer for us to get this to you, right? But the silence is good. I know we're not comfortable with it, but it's good. Let's not neglect that time. Let's pray for the bread. Lord God, we just thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Lord, we confess that sometimes we're like Stephen's accusers. We are so concerned about places or principles or practices, religious or not, that we miss you. Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself for us. We take this bread as a symbolic reminder of what you've done. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread. Let's give thanks for the cup. Jesus, we are... So eternally grateful for the sacrifice of your blood shed for us that fulfilled the imagery of those innocent, sweet, cute little lambs, Lord, that were a symbol of your purity. And Jesus, we even thank you for the genius of instituting this little symbolic reminder of all the ways that you could have left us to remember what you've done for us. It's so elemental. It's so Basic, It's so helpful. So Lord, we've come through a busy week. We've failed you. We've had victories. We've cried. We've laughed heartily. But Jesus, when it comes down to it, we're so grateful that you have paid for our sins through your blood, that we are forgiven, that we can know God eternal. We thank you. In Jesus' name, let's take the cup.